pray. Father, old Charles Wesley said it better than anyone. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of grace and truth. The first part is true of me today, apart from your word. And so that's where we go. What would a preacher say in the pulpit except for what you have said? So come now and help us. We find ourselves at the beginning of a new book of Scripture, the beginning of a, a series, Lord, that will last us deep into the summer months, and we stand in need of your orientation. Please give us each a, a compass, a Holy Spirit compass, so that we can find our way around for 2nd and 3rd John this morning. We thank you, Lord, for these three letters written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I pray that these would become letters well-worn. I pray that the oil of our fingers would be all over these pages the next 20 weeks for our ever-increasing joy and assurance in Christ, I pray it. Amen. Though many of you perhaps have, uh, if you have not done so, now is a good time to find a Bible or locate your mobile device and open it or click it on the epistle of 1 John. It's, it's tucked toward the back of the New Testament. 1 John. It's uh, the Bibles, as Andy said, are underneath the seats. 1021. 1021 is the page number that we'll begin on. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you will take with you also, if you haven't already, a preaching calendar. They're out in Fellowship Hall on the information table. The preaching calendars there are there mainly, not just to give you a heads up, um, but so that you will pray, a heads down, if you will, and arms folded, that you will pray for this series. We desperately stand in need of your prayers as we go to unfold God's word. So pray over that preaching calendar over these weeks. This calendar will take us from today, April 3rd, uh, Lord willing, clear till Labor Day weekend, which is right around the corner. Uh, it's five months from now, and that's when we'll land the plane with Third Third John. So, Lord willing, this is our course for the next two seasons, or five months, or 20 weeks, however you like to say it. Our series is entitled, Three Letters from the Disciple Whom Jesus Loved, a study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, we'll, we'll deal with issues of authorship in just a minute, uh, but it's important to note that when we speak of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I don't want to assume anything, we're not talking about the first three chapters of the Gospel of John. Oftentimes, that's uh, just something that we need to clear up. Um, we're not talking about the Gospel of John or, or the fourth Gospel, the, the fourth biography of Jesus. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. Um, these three letters found right at the end of our New Testament, known as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are, are different. Now, to confuse the Gospel of John with the epistles of John is unfortunate. But to refuse to connect the Gospel of John with the epistles of John is unwise. They are deeply connected with one another. 
show you why. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 31, the author states his central purpose for the book, and it goes like this. 1 John 20, 31 reads, These are written so that you may know that, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, so, excuse me, so that you may believe, I blew my lead, let me start over again. John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe and have life in Jesus. That's the reason we have the Gospel of John. The word believe is found 99 times in John's Gospel. The word life is found 55 times in John's Gospel. Believe and have life in Jesus. My, my favorite way to put the burden of John's gospel is this way. John says that the good news of Jesus Christ is to be believed, and that means by God's grace it is to be lived. Believe and have life. Now, where we are this morning, the epistle of 1 John, or the letter of 1 John, it also has an overarching purpose statement. John was nothing but clear. 1 John 5.13, and you can turn there, 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you catch the way those two verses dovetail? 1 John, or excuse me, John 20.31 and 1 John 5.13. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. For John 20, 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 John five thirteen says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote his gospel that we may believe and have life in Christ, but he wrote his first epistle that we may know that we have life in Christ. The word know appears 32 times in 1 John. It's only five chapters long. John wrote his gospel that we may believe and have life in Christ, but he wrote his first epistle that we may know that we have life in Christ. So not to labor the point, but one burden is belief and life. The other burden is assurance for those who believe that they indeed have life. The first focus is faith unto salvation. The second focus is assurance of faith unto salvation. You can boil it down to four words, actually, in each verse that John uses to state his objective. John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe. 1 John 5, 13, that you may know. You see how they're similar? Equally as importantly, do you see how they're different? John wrote his gospel that we may believe and have life in Christ, but he wrote his first epistle that we may know that we have life in Christ. So let's begin with an overview of this letter. First, let's deal with authorship. Who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Well, strictly speaking, as with uh, the Gospel of John also, it, it's an anonymous 
epistle, this and 2nd and 3rd John. The titles at the top of your Bible with each text are not original with each letter. That's the confession of church history as opposed to the confession of the Holy Spirit. So when I say they're anonymous, I mean that in the literal sense, without a name. What do we do with that? Well, as many of you know, my wife is a first grade teacher. And she's not only a first grade teacher, but she's a first grade teacher in a classroom of 71 first graders. Did you know that? Now, truth in advertising, there's four teachers altogether. Okay? It's called personalized learning. It's actually a, a cutting-edge model that the West Honka schools are um, engaging in this year, uh, the learning lab model. But they're all in one big room. The fact remains that every day Melissa is working among 71 squirrely, squirmy, silly, sweet kids. And these kids do homework. And would you imagine that from time to time, one of them turns in an anonymous paper? Happens from time to time. And I asked her on Friday, I said, Hun, how successful are you guys typically in finding the owner of said anonymous paper? You know her answer? Almost every time. It's not a mystery. Why not? Because of the internal evidence. The evidence that the gospel according to John was actually penned by the apostle Paul, son of Zebedee, brother of James, is extremely persuasive. His favorite term for himself throughout the gospel is the disciple whom Jesus loved, the namesake of our sermon series. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now we examined this three years ago when we studied John's gospel cover to cover. Four times John uses that designation for himself in John's gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some have thought that this designation points to a sort of arrogance that John had, a certain swagger, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Is that how he said it? I doubt it. I agree with Don Carson, who says, such a suggestion betrays a profound ignorance of the dynamics of Christian experience. If a son of thunder could become the apostle of love, it is scarcely a mark of arrogance. It is rather a mark of brokenness. Amen? Amen. The apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Well, given the connective tissue that we, we've only examined one verse, um, just to cut to the chase, the apostle John wrote these letters too. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Well, what about date and origin? Uh, when and from where did John write these letters? It's always an interesting question. Recalling the scripture reading you heard just moments ago, John was an eyewitness of the life and teaching and suffering and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. Which means that you drive it back, he was at least a teenager at the time of A.D. 30, maybe in his early 20s. He couldn't have been much older than that. The early church fathers tell us that John was a resident of Ephesus toward the tail end of the first century, roughly A.D. 70 to A.D. 100. 
In the letters themselves, John consistently and without fail reflects the the wisdom of a mature Christian leader dealing with very difficult issues of discipleship and personal issues, doctrinal teaching, church discipline, practical teaching. Most conservative scholars date these epistles somewhere in the 80s, like when I grew up, the 80s, okay? First century. And that would put John then in his early 70s. I'd buy that. From the tone of these letters, I think that's John here. Now, written from the city of Ephesus. Now that we've mentioned Ephesus, let me just say one thing in passing. The book of Revelation was also written by the Apostle John. And the first three chapters of that book are given over to what we call the the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, the letters to the seven churches. Now what's different here is that John actually took these letters down at dictation from the risen Christ. Um, But it's fascinating to note the similarities in theology, in language, in practical concern between the letters to the seven churches and the epistles of John. There are especially tight parallels between 1 John and the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, If you want to do a fascinating and fruitful Bible study with your community group, compare 1 John with Revelation 2, 1-7. The parallels are nothing short of stunning. So, you will learn fresh things. The way that John speaks in 1 John will throw all sorts of light on the book of Revelation more broadly, too, and vice versa. Okay, what about the recipients? To whom and to where did he write these letters? Well, again, pointing out the correspondences between the letters to the seven churches and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are helpful. Um, I'm simply going to make one statement, offer one background observation, and then we'll move on. Um, The statement about the recipients or the designation, the destination of the letters, is just that we don't know, for instance. I know that's not very satisfying, but uh, he wrote the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and so maybe it was modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. It's, It's hard to know for certain, and that may not be especially helpful, but I think this observation will be because it doesn't come from me, it comes from a guy named Christopher Bass who wrote a fine book on 1 John. Uh, Dr. Chris Bass, who's also a pastor and a church planter in Boston, um, has written this. Quote, 1 John was written as a result of a split that took place within a church or a group of churches to which John had clear ties. Those who departed denied the union between the man Jesus and the divine Christ. They denied the incarnation. Okay. Moreover, they seem to have made a claim to special knowledge and anointing of God. Such claims plausibly led to triumphal and unloving attitudes toward those they were trying to seduce away from John's fellowship. John writes to a community of believers who find themselves in need of reassurance and exhortation. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Just a knowing glance will do. But have you ever been a part of a church split? 
Ever spent time with folks who denied essential Christian teaching and yet still called themselves Christians? Have you ever longed that your church might just grow to become more loving at the end of the day? Just more loving? Well, I'm not sure of the original first century congregation that received this letter I am sure I know of a 21st century congregation that might benefit from this letter. Amen? Now, as far as the outline of 1 John goes, uh, you have one there in your sermon notes. I won't walk us through it. I I took it. I took it from Bob Yarbrough. Um, I liked it so much. He was a professor of mine at Trinity. Um, Rather tall, reserved, conservative Presbyterian with a wicked sense of humor. Um, I'm not going to walk you through Dr. Yarbrough's outline. You can read it. We're going to spend the next four months in these chapters. I just want to tell you a quick story about him. Is that okay? If I'm recalling correctly, the class was Acts and Pauline epistles. So the book of Acts and then the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul. It's a wonderful class. And one day we were taking a fairly important exam on the material. And Dr. Yarbrough was slowly and quietly pacing the seats in the aisles, snaking through, slithering through the classroom. And he came upon a young woman taking her test. Now, as you might imagine, and as at least one in our number knows, it's not easy to be a woman in seminary anyway. Uh, surrounded with all these guys. It's a challenge as it is. And this young lady was very bright. She's taking her test, and she's also having her lunch during the exam. Uh, If I remember right, it was Asian leftovers of some kind. It was in a Tupperware container. It was like Kung Pao or General Sao's or something, some sort of chicken from the night before. And Dr. Yarbrough stops at her desk, but behind her, And he's looming over her as she's taking her test. Now, she's a little lady, and he's big. He's not giving up much height. 6'3", 6'4", maybe. He's a big guy, big, tall, lanky guy. And she's not afraid of him. So she says, can I help you? (laughs) And he backs off. He says, no, no, no. I was just checking to see if that rice was converted. And he walked on. Now, I was going to tell you that story anyway. Because I have his outline, and I thought I had to talk to him, talk about him. And I thought it was just a funny story from 15 years ago. But I'm sitting at my desk this past Friday, thinking about the punchline of that story and the main theme of 1 John. I was just checking to see if that rice was converted. Remember, John wrote his gospel that we may believe and have life in Christ, but he wrote his first epistle that we may know that we have life in Christ. John is just checking to see if we are indeed converted. He's just checking in. Hmm. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
assurance of salvation. Are you a Christian? Are you sure? How sure? Do you believe and have life in Jesus' name? Are you 100% confident in this moment, you would bet your hands on it, that you're a believer, that you're born again, adopted by God, justified by Jesus? How sure are you? What would be the value to you personally of the answer to that question being 100% yes? That'd be useful to you? Yeah, it'd be useful to me too. On the other hand, what if you're currently nurturing false assurance of salvation in Christ? What if you believe that you are born again, but in point of fact, you are actually dead in your trespasses and sins? Would you want to know about it? Take it to the bank. False assurance of the new birth is far worse than no assurance of the new birth. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 too, that you can believe the gospel in vain. I did for 18 years and then I walked away. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that you can indeed fail to meet the test of new life in Christ. Seth Brickley pointed out to me not long ago that there wasn't a single disciple in the upper room who would have fathomed that Judas was the one who was going to betray his Lord. They gave him the money back. They never suspected Judas. We, we just take that as a given. That was not a given in their circle. Nobody was expecting Judas. But Jesus said of Judas in Matthew 26, 24, it would have been better for that man that he had not even been born. Wouldn't you like solid persuasion of your salvation in Christ? Or at least someone to level with you if you are indeed engaging in presumption of your salvation in Christ? So let's close with four keys to assurance from, of salvation from 1 John. Here's where we get our pens out. Let's fill in some blanks. Four keys to assurance of salvation from 1 John. Four applications as we close. Number one. You know that you are born again. You have been born again when you confess the Christ. You know that you have been born again when you confess the Christ. 1 John 2.23. 1 John 2.23. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Seems pretty clear. It's Trinitarian language. We believe in this church that there is one God, 
who eternally exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John believed that too. And here in 1 John 2.23, the apostle is indicating that if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are in right relationship with the Father, who is God. And the New Testament also teaches that we don't make such a confession apart from the work of the Spirit. So, 1 John 2.23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. As clear as that is, let's look at another one. 1 John 5.1. 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's even clearer to me. Clear as a bell. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice if you were to compare 1 John 2.23 with 1 John 5.1, notice that you learn that confessing is analogous to believing. And notice that being born of God is analogous to having God as your father. They both stand to reason, don't they? Now, just a little sidebar to stir the pot here on 1 John 5, 1. When I was little, my, my siblings and I loved Sesame Street. Just ruined for Sesame Street. Loved it. And, oh, I don't know, it might have been when I was watching it, 1978, 80, but I'm sure it was earlier, 1970, 71, when this clip was created. And it was called... It was a musical interlude. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Anybody remember that? Anybody? Shall I take you for a stroll down Amnesia Lane? Imagine hoedown music, okay? And I don't know, maybe Uncle Goober and Cooter harmonizing as they sing. A which come first, the chicken or the egg? A which come first, a chicken or the egg? How could something so fat and furry come from something so smooth and pearly? A which come first, the chicken or the egg? Second verse. A which come first, the feather or the shell? A which come first, the feather or the shell? When you see one egg or the other, do you ever think about his mother? Which come first, the feather or the shell? No, I will spare you the bridge. But here's the final line. If you wanted to begin again, would you start with an omelet or a hen? Oh, which come first, the chicken or the egg? Now, you may think that I've lost my mind, and that may be true. <laughs> a long time ago. But do you ever wonder which comes first, faith? Or new birth? Or better yet, which begets which? Does faith cause us to be born again? Or does the new birth give rise to faith? This isn't a question we divide over as a church. Ever, ever, ever. Okay? But it's been my settled conviction these last 16 years of my life that knowing the answer to this question matters to me personally. 
Knowing this question impacts, if you'll excuse the pun, how I conceive of a person becoming a Christian. Knowing the answer to this question impacts the language that I use when I pray for an unconverted person. Knowing the answer to this question absolutely impacts the dynamics involved when I seek to actually lead a lost person to Jesus in that moment. And it's also related to how I deal with them. It is especially related to how I deal with them in the realm of follow-up once they've professed faith in Christ. So, which comes first, faith or new birth? Well, what does John say? Let's read it again. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes, present continuous verb, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Perfect tense verb, has been born. The perfect tense means a past action with ongoing effects. That's what the perfect means. Which comes first, according to 1 John 5, 1, faith or new birth? New birth. New birth. Now, some people can't or won't see this. I understand that. Where I hope we agree is that everyone must be born again. We close ranks there? Amen. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ this morning? You know you've been born again when you confess the Christ. Second key to assurance, hate your sin. Hate your sin. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Finally, 1 John 5, 18. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, as we will see in the weeks and months ahead, John is not talking about the perfection of your life. He is talking about the direction of our lives. Do you hate and hunt your sin? Or have you simply made peace with it? Christians don't make peace with their sin. Christians make war on their sin. Christians battle their own pride and envy 
and sinful anger and sloth and greed and gluttony and lust. Yes, we do. And if you do not, you are not one of us. The second key to assurance is hate your sin in 1 John. You know you've been born again when you hate your sin. Third, walk the walk. Walk the walk. You know that you've been born again when you walk the walk. 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Friends, it's what the world is waiting for from us. They're watching. Now, we could spend the rest of the afternoon combing 1 John for texts along these lines and the broader New Testament. We say in our house, we are saved by grace through faith and union with Christ apart from works. Therefore, no boasting. But we are saved by grace through faith in union with Christ for good works and therefore no coasting. Scriptures that speak of obedience as the acid test over time as to whether or not you are a Christian. They are legion. I'll just sum it up with a word from Joel Beakey, who once said, We cannot experience high levels of assurance while we participate in low levels of obedience. Amen? One final application. So you you know you've been born again when you walk the walk. Final application. You know you've been born again when you love the church. You know you've been born again when you love the church. 1 John 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Hmm. 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I want to say that again. That's my favorite verse in 1 John. First half of 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, all the brothers and sisters. Church is not a sixth grade locker hallway. It's what Jesus is building None of us, none of us are assets only to the church. In point of fact, when we walk in the door, we are liabilities. And anybody who would love us, amen. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, is a liar. 
For he who, does not, who doesn't love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he's not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I hear it in the broader culture and sadly sometimes uh, among professing Christ followers. I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. Yeah, that may be a fairly common way of thinking. It's just a terribly naive and dangerous way of thinking. To love Jesus but not the church is like saying you're devoted to Christ but you're not devoted to what he was devoted to. That's absolutely asinine, as my stepmother used to say. It is absurd to think, to think, much less to say or to live. To love Jesus but not the church. To love Jesus but not the church is to make a deadly heart calculation. It cannot be. If you do not love the people of God, you do not love the Son of God. I'll close with this. Two days ago, my devotional reading contained one of the sweetest turns of phrase in the entire Old Testament. It came from 1 Samuel 18. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, 1 and 3, we read, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. The author of 1 Samuel is quite clear, quite clear that before the love that Jonathan had for David and before the covenant that was struck up between these two men, before all of that came the knitting of Jonathan's heart to David's. 1 Samuel 18.1 The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. The Hebrew here is a very graphic uh, verb and preposition conjunction. Uh, it, it's a preposition that doesn't mean just to, but in or into. They didn't ask me to translate this, but if I were working with the ESV, I would have said, Jonathan's soul was knit into David's soul. Then he loved him, and then he made a covenant with him. Who did that? Not these guys. Nothing but potential animosity between Jonathan and David, if you look at the story. Jonathan had, had every reason to be threatened by David, and Jonathan makes the first move, or should we say the second move? Because that verb is a divine passive. Who did that? God did that. God got out the knitting needles and took these two Jewish men's hearts and knit them together. And yes, the result was they loved each other in life and in death with covenant love. Same thing here in 1 John and same thing here at Mount Evangelical Free Church.